podcast and I'm your host John Lamberton. Today's guest is Micah Silver who is an artist and curator here in LA and his 2014 book Figures in Air Essays Towards a Philosophy of Audio uh, gets into audio as temporary social architectures made of air as he describes it. Uh, we discuss this as well as a number of other topics ranging from VR to AI voice simulation to uh, his wind sculptures that he did uh, as well as a 25 millisecond piece of music that has been listened to for months at a time. So this conversation was a little bit short, so we didn't get to discuss everything that we wanted to, uh, but we plan on having a second conversation in the coming weeks where we'll pick up on some of the topics from this episode, as well as diving into the future of music aided by machine learning and AI. So it's a very interesting conversation for me. I hope that you enjoy it as well and stay tuned for the next round. Thank you. All right, I'm here with Micah Silver. Hello, Micah. Hi, John. Um, so we have a bunch of stuff that I'm going to talk, uh, or we're going to talk about today. But uh, the initial icebreaker question I always pose to people is basically just, uh, do you drink coffee? And if so, uh, can you tell me about your coffee drinking? He um, says I, yeah, I do drink coffee. Um, I'm in like a pretty utilitarian coffee space at the moment. Um, and it's not, uh, I buy, I buy beans at target. Um, and then I grind them, uh, with some degree of specificity for a, um, percolator that looks a little bit like a grenade. It's like a, um, it's like an old German thing. Um, and it's, uh, usually pretty bitter and not that good. Um, but I think that somehow like the, somehow my having gone, th having gone through the, like, um, well, I guess it just connects to my general distaste for connoisseurship culture at this stage of our culture anyways. And so I think I just can only take coffee drinking so far, even though I really do of course, enjoy it when it's delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that utilitarian focus on coffee is kind of lost on a lot of people because, you know, in the the like coffee industry right now, it's so about like, uh, you know, these like precious flavor notes and stuff like that. And that's fine and dandy. But, uh, you know, there's like such a purpose to, you know, serve with coffee. Uh, well, it's so awesome. I, Sorry. One more no, thing about coffee, which okay. is like because I think coffee, I think it's a coffee is like a really it's a really perfect. It's such a good question because it's really a microcosm of what's sort of messy about many different parts of our culture and consumption. And that it's like people. People are people are fighting over the last five percent of quality when we're already in the territory of like you're already drinking like if you go to Target. Like they're selling you already like single origin bags of coffee and they cost $7 for a pound. You can go someplace else and pay like literally 20. I think I bought as a present someone 
it was probably not about it was probably 12 ounces of coffee from some roaster in Orange County and it cost $24. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, of course it was delicious, but it was also delicious in this like last few, few degrees of separation, um, which just feels like we've lost sight of the state of the world in general and are instead focused on some like really minute aspect of our consumptive patterns. Cause we can't figure out what is possibly more meaningful, um, which just seems really sad. Yeah. The, the sort of like Pareto side of that, where it's like, you know, squeezing out that last 5% for like all that extra effort and expense, uh, doesn't, yes. doesn't sit well with me. Uh, but so, uh, in terms of coffee and like the utilitarian purpose being, I think largely to like stoke inspiration and, uh, intellect and stuff like that it reminds me that our mutual friend, Albert, I think introduced us, uh, because I'm a nootropics person and yeah. I think he mentioned you being interested in them. Mm-hmm. And then I came across your, uh, little presentation talking about lawnmower man. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, that's like my favorite nootropic movie probably. So, um, is this still something that interests you? the nootropics those nootropics um i feel like well the the piece music x the piece about the piece that involved the um director of lawnmower band was kind of like a um i mean it was like it was like a concept store for a speed learning system for music theory of which brett leonard was the spokesperson um and in that it was really more like a critique of um, people's hopes for VR by just talking about how they haven't changed very much. And so I think similarly, like the, um, it's not that nootropics is a new idea or that like people have, or that it's even um, the the idea of like optimizing or changing yourself um, is a new idea uh, and I guess the way that I've been thinking about it at the moment is less through um, what I consume through my mouth and more, I've been thinking more about like what I'm breathing. And also um, I guess I've been rethinking a little bit of the trajectory, the, the trajectory of experimental music in terms of what like early 20th century new age, new ageism is, which kind of connects to this whole thing. Um, and just thinking how, like it's not that obviously new age music gets a bad rap and in part for really good reasons but it's also i think i guess what i'm starting to think about is just that maybe experimental music is actually a subgenre of new age in the same way that like nootropic experimentation at this point in time is kind of like a subgenre of this like much older new age ethos which is just that which actually even connects with the coffee stuff which is that it's like people trying to figure out how to change themselves um, and having the belief that there is some purpose and meaning to doing that and that there's more to um, there's more to experience than what you're born into through the culture I mean what gets tricky and so I think with experimental music to me the core rationale for for the core question is always for someone who doesn't care about it is like you know why why should I listen to things that I don't already like you know why should I be seeking out things that sound bad? And why would anyone, you know, why would anyone do that to themselves? It doesn't make, there has to be some kind of philosophical runaround to convince oneself that that's worth the time. Um, So, yeah, I'm not currently uh, like consuming anything special, but I'm thinking a lot about this stuff in other ways, um, mostly in terms of how to um, 
think about and invite people into the sphere of this um, listening room here in Gardena called Black Hole. Um, mm -hmm. When you say, um, sorry, when you say uh, that you're thinking about how you're like breathing things, what, what do you mean by that? Um, well, I guess, I, I mean, I, the last like kind of musical projects that I was involved with were more about using, trying to change the way air moves and to think about composition in terms of air, air forms and sensations of air and time um, as a way to bypass all of the, the aesthetic problems with exposing people to audio, um, which like photography, everyone kind of has such a sense of expertise and self-optimization based on their consumer choices that it's a pretty challenging, especially in like a short, I guess the where, where this really comes from is like doing doing sound installations in museums where you have someone for a couple minutes, you're not going to change the way they listen. You're not going to change the way they listen in a couple minutes. Um, and even if you try to make your piece so it kind of guides people into a particular type of listening space, I started to come to the awareness for myself that it's an unfair ask and that it just doesn't actually, it just doesn't really work. And I want to do things that have some positive uh, or questioning, you know, something that expands a sense of possibility for people to encounter it that are, that's difficult to reject out of hand or just, or just misconstrue out of hand. Um, so I was working on those kinds of pieces and as part of that research was developing these like airflow sensors to map a, map a park um, and make changes to the flow in that park. And I guess as part of just like thinking and focusing more on my sense, the sensations of the air around me as a compositional material, I started to have this feeling like, um, it's dumb to say, but just, you know, that like I'm more like a fish and I'm consuming more air than I'm eating anything. Um, and I'm um, changing in relationship to what the air is around me and how it feels and what it, what's in it. Um, and even like the word air is totally weird because it's like air, what we really mean is like this, I mean, in a city, like in like Los Angeles, what we mean when we say air is like a completely heterogeneous mix of all kinds of shit, like tiny shards of metal and glass and skin and, you know, everything. And of course, um, it's been interesting as, so these pieces started kind of in like 2011. And of course, with coronavirus, this has all become now like pop, like I remember seeing these visualizations, these flow visualizations in the supermarket and stuff. Um, you know, just like basically like ray tracing or vector tracing, um, you know, some like simple flow model. And I think it was the first time in my life that like the, the general population was thinking about air as like the idea that every, if you're in a room with other people, you're literally breathing in and out of the other person's body and just how crazy that is. Or like if you're at a concert, just that everyone is literally like breathing in and out of each other's sweat. Um, not in a, yeah, like, and not in a poetic way in like an entirely actual way. <laughs> um, and just how freaked out and how still, still people like want to reject, reject the interconnectedness of everyone's bodies and physical materials and construction sites and every, you know, just like there is, I think the air is interesting because it's just, um, if you're a human being, it's just the thing that we're all sharing. It's, it is, it is like the primary commons, um, and of course, that's like that's kind of also why the 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 book I wrote about audio kind of centers audio as as air, as ultimately <laughs> gets kind of boiling down to um, like a social architecture that is made of air.
and I also mean that like totally literally. I think people think often it's like more, it's like a poetic thing, but it's, um, it is, but it's also just like the, the actuality of it. It's like compression waves in air. If we could see it, we would all, if we could see it, it would sound like a dumb thing to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we could see sound saying that it's made of air, it would be a dumb thing to say because it would be so incredibly obvious. So, uh, anyways, this... it's a long run around to your, that was a long run around <laughs> of your question. It's all good. This, uh, the piece that you're talking about, uh, is the one of the many impossible reconciliations uh, between the finite and the infinite? Is that the piece you're talking about? In yeah, that park? was that was like it went through a prototyping phase, um, Madison Square Park, and then when the sculptures basically came back as uh, because of the wind load, the engineer for the park um, required like massive amounts of concrete to be poured, and there were something like two companies licensed to pour concrete in parks in New York City and the like the lowest I mean it was something like $150,000 was some absurd amount of money to um, and so basically the project got cancelled um, because the price of concrete there was no way to build any of the stuff that I wanted to build because the footings to um, like of basically avoid the catastrophic and extremely rare idea that you know like a hurricane would whip through New York City and rip out these masts and stuff and hurl them at these expensive buildings on, on Madison Avenue or something. So anyways, that's that's kind of like the the pending um, the pending project that I want to keep following up on, but has been kind of delayed by other creative and, and life and economic considerations. Mm-hmm. So, um... I mean, you talked about, uh, you know, philosophy of audio and uh, your book, and I'm sort of curious uh, what attracts you about audio or that terminology, audio in particular versus like sound or, you know, music or time. Like how, like what about audio Mm -hmm. specifically and how do you sort of differentiate that from other uh, similar terms? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I feel like, uh, yeah, like if nothing else, the point of that book was to make, and it's not that I'm the first person to make it, but it's to to make a different or new case for why audio and sound and music should be considered as distinctly. Um, but the reason to focus on audio is I think most importantly to think about, like audio is the only technology of representation that I can think of where we have replaced the, the word usage so completely. Like if people say, oh, I'm listening to music on my headphones or whatever. You know, it's like there's no, there's we, none of us have any hesitation to say that, even though what we're saying is like we're listening to some. At best, it's like a representation of some music experience that happened elsewhere. But really, we're talking about, you know, usually studio studio productions that are more like a studio art that has to do with a very like you know recent technology of representation that happened to have been so good from the beginning um, that we took it as if it almost passed a kind of Turing test. So the idea of the book is really like, if, you know, there's no disputing the audio works for most people. You know what I mean? It's not like, it's not like a technology representation that doesn't work. Like, um, like the frame rate is too slow. And so, you know, we don't quite believe it's a moving image or something or that. And I think the deal with audio is that because even the earliest forms, um, the time domain was pretty well, like you could, you can simulate a consistent time design, time domain thing with even like a spring. Um, and we think of wax cylinders or records, any kind of consistent rotation has allowed the time, the, uh, a continuous like temporal arc being created by that, which is pretty much un, unbroken. 
I mean, the audio illusion is completely fucked as soon as you start chopping up, messing with the time domain. If you're warping the, you know, you start speeding it up and slowing it down rapidly or kind of starting and start, stop it, you stop, you stop believing that it's like a particular person's voice. But if you listen to a wax cylinder recording of a, like a person singing with a guitar, you know, it's like there's no spectral information on that wax cylinder. There's nothing there. It's like your, your mind is filling in almost everything. Um, but I think the time domain, given, given the temporality of something, we can fill in a lot of the other details. I don't think it works that well the other way around. Um, but I think the purpose, the purpose of, of differentiating between audio, sound, and music is to talk about like music, leaving music as this incredibly vulnerable humans do human thing that humans do um, with each other. That makes a that involves other kinds of energies and other kinds of. I mean, my own experience of playing a lot of music and just being a part of as an as an audience member of shitloads of music. There's just something fundamentally different, you know. Even if you have some small person's recital, you know, like some a person with an instrument um, is a very very different experience, even with your eyes closed, even when it's silent, than an empty stage with a sound system. Um, that there's something essentially there's a like there's a human energy component to it um which i don't think is useful to reduce so i think and 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 the question with audio is like you know think of whatever music you've had the most powerful experience with as an audio representation you know it's like why does that work why do you have an emotional reaction to it why do you have a why is there a spatial reaction to it um why do we believe that it's testimony to like any human activity that's ever taken place on the planet um, and so the book is really asking the question of like, what is the enough, like, what is the enoughness that travels through these audio systems that allows us to have that experience? Um, and by asking that question, it's hopefully putting in relief what is really different about music and sound. I just, I think it's just like, like just recently there was news that was, you know, physicists have discovered like the upper limit for the speed of sound or something. It's like sound is not about our ear. I mean, sound is not even just 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. You know, sound is like compression waves of all kinds. So when we're talking, when people talk about sound art or sound artists, it's like we're, we should really be talking about people who are thinking about like the physics of sound. Mm -hmm. um, most of what is sound art is really people interrogating audio technology. Um, and in, in a million different ways, but I think it's, I think it's, one more example, and then I'll shut up about this, but it's like, I was giving this workshop on Zoom recently where I was using a AI representation of my voice. Mm -hmm. So I trained this, like, you know, these, there are these, they're fine. Like I've been watching it over the past 10 years and it's like every year it gets a little better. And now there's finally one called Descript, which is pretty good. Like if you train, you know, you can pay 30 bucks or something and train, you know, you can read, you can start reading your voice into this, um, this software. And then, you know, just start typing and it'll basically render out stuff you have never said in your voice. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been at, you know, I think somewhere in the book, I probably say it's like, as soon as you can do that well, as soon as I can record this conversation and scrape, you know, John Lamberton's voice and have you say whatever you want, then it's like, okay, audio is now clearly a, a representation. It's no longer proof in court because there's so it's not about like, you know, deep fakes or something. It's just like Photoshop. You know, every, every, everyone doesn't, everyone believes that images aren't necessarily real. Um, mm -hmm. And people should have always believed that audio is not r real, <laughs> that it's a representation of something that can be anything. It's about imagination. 
Um, but anyways, the whole thing is, is actually not about critiquing that. It's really that audio is such a powerful tool for the imaginary that we need to look at what we use, how we use it for, and what the values are that are that are behind what we're using it for, um, and treat it as as powerful a technology as it is. That's kind of it's definitely you know I'm I'm all about audio. It's it's not like, it's not a critique. It's actually it's actually um, some kind of like sideways uh, yeah proposal for how to think of it um, to give it even more power. There's so many uh, different avenues to go down there that I'm I'm wondering where to go. But uh, yeah. so it, you know, it it made me think of like vibrations and information and that type of thing as other sort of categories that are nearby to audio and sound and you know like rhythm versus time. Um, do you think about like the the informational aspect or like the vibrational aspect? I mean, like I, I don't really know what I'm asking, but. Uh, uh, do those factors play into audio for you? Well, I think it's like, um, maybe the way I think about music also is that it's the core. For, for me, I, I feel like some kind of like core bird's eye view feeling of why music is important is that it's a way that, it's a way that humans seem to ritualize senses of time. And um, I think cross, you know, because of recording, um, we still have, you know, some documentation of how distinct the kind of time structuring of music around on planet Earth has been um, before. You know, it is it is like slowly been colonized by European uh, tuning and rhythmic structures for sure, and that's that's like a whole other conversation. But the but I think. F- on a macro level, like I'm less interested in individual artistry at this point and more thinking in terms of what um, what we're doing with these, what we, what we do with music and what we do with audio to create these kind of larger rituals for ourselves and what that says about who we are and what that says about what we value. Um, but I think for me, definitely like the time domain is the key one. Um, and it seems to be like, Like to me, listening to a lot of, I mean, I listen to tons of recordings and it's like from absolute garbage to things I think are interesting. I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty agnostic at what, to what I listen to at this point. Um, but it does feel to me like we've boiled down like the temporal structures of most music we listen to, to like a handful of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like when I, when I, when I think about like what experimental music is for me, and I think experimental music is like a total moving target to just whatever whatever is experimental for where you are is what experimental music is in that moment. Um, but for me, it still remains kind of like in terms, in terms of listening structures, time structures. Um, that's where my, that's, that's where I get really interested. Cool. Um, thinking about like, like, I guess mapping the different, uh, subjective sides of music, uh, you know, like in terms of, if you think about like flavors, uh, you want to like look at all these different flavor combinations, but then there's like this whole world of flavors that aren't good and like yeah. aren't enjoyable. Like there's no, no positive valence to them. Uh, but I feel like there's sort of an imperative as an artist to map out these, uh, you know, new territories. Like for me, you know, I'm really interested in like exploring uh, rhythmic permutations and there's this whole kind of like, uh, 
I feel like a version that a lot of people have to this complex stuff, but also like there's an aversion to just like anything that isn't immediately satisfying or like uh, enjoyable. Do you think that it's worth like mapping out uh, the entire space of sounds and sound combinations, or do you think that there should be a focus on sort of like the uh, more positively affecting ones, if that makes sense? Um, uh, do you mean like, I mean, I feel like there have been funny attempts at like tech, taxonomical composition and performance strategies. Um, is that are, are you? Is that what you're thinking about? I mean, just like, uh, you know, if, if you're talking about flavors, uh, nobody's going to like really be drinking just straight vinegar, but it's really interesting to be aware of the, you know, vast sort of like differences of vinegar. vinegar. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so like, no. yeah, should we be like uh, prioritizing some sort of consonants or some sort of like, uh, you know, symmetry or something like that? Or is it worth, exploring you know the the 16 against 17 polyrhythms that uh you know have no sort of like or like you know it doesn't hit us in the way that a perfect fifth does um i feel like that's a, that's like such an interesting and weird question because there's like mm -hmm. um I, I i feel i'm still stuck between things like so I'll, if i this is the, the what i'm going to say is more like a diagram rather than a, one thought um but because we're stuck in time, it'll sound like probably it'll it'll sound more linear than I mean it to be. But like so so on the one hand, I think it's really beautiful musical cultures where everyone knows the same songs and sings together. And I think you can put that in contrast with like a what I feel like I was indoctrinated with as uh, you know like I I I showed up at Wesleyan at like eighteen. From having grown up in the middle of the woods, really like barely with the internet and having kind of accidentally gotten there by not uh, attending a lecture by Anthony Braxton, I didn't know that, not only did I not know who Anthony Braxton was, I thought I was in a different room in a class led by someone named Jay Hogard. So it's like, I didn't, and, and it just was an accident that I ended up in that kind of place. But I felt, I was just attracted to, um, well, to really to him and his thinking, but the, but I was definitely indoctrinated with like a post Adorno logic of like what musicians and composers should be, which is that every, um, you should break down what music is for you and build it back up into some kind of new form that um, is peculiar to your experience and, and conception. Um, and over time, I started to have the feeling like, wait a second, this is sort of, this is actually like a, this is a really like dystopic libertarian vision, you know, like imagine everyone does that. And then you just end up with a world full of like, everyone just making their own music that no one else can really understand its conception, you know. And of course, that doesn't really happen because everyone is so influenced, you know, everyone is so influenced early on as kids and everything with what they listen to. It's hard to like, you know, you can't you can't fully debase your music culture as much as you might want to. Um, like I just, I just bought a synthesizer for, uh, I mean, not for, for my um, one-year-old, but because of course, like a one-year-old can't really play it. But I, I got like, I was committed to getting one of these old Kurzweil's where you can change the, you can change the tuning system on it <laughs> because I'm so paranoid that, not paranoid, 
I really want, I, I really think that it's like from an early age, if you don't, if you're not hearing, you know, the kinds of frequency lattices that you're hearing will become the normative thing. And it needs to, it needs, it, it needs to start really early. Otherwise I remember, you know, whatever, back to your question. So I think on the one hand you have this like libertarian strand of experimentalism and particularly like American slash European experimental music continuum where you know, we're all taught like in the 50s and 60s, you know, every new piece is like a fully new conception of music. And the history is kind of told that way that it's like, you know, Stockhausen, you know, there's contrapunt key and it's like, oh my God, no one has ever heard anything like this. And then you have like, but it's sort of connected to this other piece by Weber and, you know, 10 years early. And there's this kind of like mapping of these like unfolding of musical variables. Um, but at some point, it's just like you have slightly exhausted the obvious conceptual turns within that, that particular system. Um, and I feel like we're kind of in that space where it's like, it's not that, uh, yeah, but, but, and even if there were more, the question for me is like, do you actually want to live in a music culture where everyone is doing their own thing and put that in the axis of like, you know, some, uh, you know, socialist music projects, you know, you think about Cardu where, where Cardu ended up, you know, it's just like singing, you know, like singing worker, worker songs and stuff and feeling like, yeah, this whole experimental music thing is just like, uh, extremely bourgeois esoterica that no one cares about. Um, and because no one cares about it, it doesn't have any valiance for people's lives or building power together or helping each other, anything. Um, it's just like a libertarian thing, really. Yeah. So, and, and I think increasingly kind of like a capitalist thing where people, you know, try to kind of like corner the market on some particular stylistic minutiae. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's true now of Oddly, what's been true of experimental music aesthetics has also sort of become increasingly true with popular music. Um, and so like when you hear, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm 40, and I feel like when I talk to people who are in their early 20s about this stuff, I already feel like I sort of misunderstood something, which is like the extreme nuance through which people differentiate um, like sub-genres sub, sub of popular music now mm -hmm. is at a level that... Uh, I think I would never have understood. I, I didn't anticipate, and I can't. I can't relate to because to me, it's like I'm still looking at it from. Yeah, it's sounding. It's feeling like within some standard deviations, still like a lot of pseudo diversity, um, but that the key is still to like differentiate yourself. Um, yeah, it's, but, it's the, the the language that you're using is. Uh, kind of strikingly familiar because I, I did a like one of the earlier interviews was with this guy uh andres gomez and Mielsen, and he has these eight different models of art and so one of them is the cool kid theory and mm -hmm. so he basically uh relates that back to like uh like you know, facial symmetry or like averages of faces and like sort of this like uh like mildly like fascist leaning in art to just like create the most like vastly appealing thing uh and then his third model was a uh, the hipster theoretic model, which is you described as being sort of two standard deviations away uh, from the norm in terms of like aesthetic assertions. And so it's, it's funny that you're using much of the same language. Uh, yeah, just wanted to inject, interject that. Yeah, no, I, I, I want to I wanna, I wanna hear about his theories. I think because this is not like the center of what I think about, but it does seem like, um, yeah, it, yeah, I'd be interested to hear his taxonomy. I mean, but to, to like your, your, your question, maybe more directly, you know, it's like the, like I think about Anthony Braxton's music as a, as a music that is built up taxonomically. Um, 
in terms of just like his whole lang idea of language music and the the idea of kind of composition existing as like these um, what he calls logics you know so there's this kind of pollination of different kinds of logics and a logic could be something from like something broad like scalar log logics or staccato logics or you could apply it but it's he uses the word he uses the term logics to just draw a conceptual circle around anything really that he he wants to that is is hard to otherwise pin down um as like an aesthetic unit and then sort of treats it almost like astrologically you know and and literally the, the way that he conducts the language music is like you know this logic in the house of this logic you know um, intersecting with this other logic and you know his scores also have this kind of diagrammatic quality um you know you can see that in like Stockhausen or Brown um, other people of that kind of era um but but he, his, his work is very clear in that way. Um, and then I think like Pierre Schaeffer, who I think is kind of misunder, I think his a little misunderstood for his larger project because he didn't complete it. But I think his vision was also to like make a complete taxonomy of, um, you know, things that could be recorded, gestures that could be recorded and to think about what, what would that, what would that mean to like, you know, build up a music out of this new system, this new kind of, gestural language um so i don't know i think to some extent you have to drink the vinegar if you want to discover like the combination that makes the vinegar interesting for more people mm -hmm. and so i like i think the thing with anthony's project or even like you think something like serialism where you know to break your culture and to find new possibilities probably requires drinking the vinegar you know, probably doesn't probably doesn't happen if you because it, I mean, yeah, I mean, I feel like the whole the whole um, experimental music thing is like you you need to drink the vinegar because you don't know why you don't like it, um, and you probably don't like it's probably not that you have really thought it through and felt it through and decided that it's it's not what you want. Um, you probably inherited it somehow. You know, so I mean, like Cage talks about that in terms of his appropriation of Zen by using the word habit. Um, but I don't think you have to look at it. I don't think you have to think about it in terms of, um, you know, Buddhist spirituality to come to that same conclusion. You know, I think mm -hmm. the place that I, the place that I got interested in more was how much difference can you hold in your mind as a whole? Like how much, like when I was making more kind of musical audio compositions or installations, I had this software that I had had built, which like chopped up sound into little beads and then basically perforate them against each other. And the mm -hmm. idea was like, I want to be able to rapidly recenter onto some kind of like unusual combination of sounds and experience that as an aesthetic whole. And then I want to be able to, you know, a quarter second later be in another combination of things and also be able to kind of like ping that as a whole. Um, and that was kind of like my cognitive agenda, but that, you know, what that resulted in was like, I'm, I'm there working on this stuff, practicing this way of listening, which I think is interesting. And then you make a piece like that and you share it or you put it in a museum or something, or you, you share, you know, just like some reduction of it, um, stereo reduction of it or something. And it's like, it sounds like total fucking nonsense to someone who, who hasn't been thinking about moving in that way of listening. So, um, I think that is the problem with like the vinegar thing is like, People need to have their hands held and their like backs rubbed when they're when they're drinking the vinegar. <laughs> you know, and experimental music doesn't really do that. It's kind of like 
a little club you get indoctrinated into, usually through some educational experience. And then you're in a world of people who have already drank the vinegar and then people get into like, how strong vinegar are you willing to drink? You know, it's like, how hot hot sauce do you want to take? Um, and then and, and then it's become like kind of boring because it sort of like loses track of its um, its purpose for society and becomes just, yeah, something where people are like, I don't know, managing their identities and relationship to their heroes or something. I suppose to like link this back to nootropics and sort of like a, like the nutritional look at this, like I'm thinking of like Steve Reich is like straight sugar basically. Cause it's just, you know, juicy, beautiful diatonicism. Yeah. And then like, maybe instead of vinegar, something like, uh, you know, like uh, say cow or something like that, where it's like, it's bitter, but like the polyphenols are going to maybe like, you know, do some upregulation of some sort of pathway. Uh, and so like, maybe there's, a benefit to be had from sort of enduring the thing that isn't easily endured versus uh, the sort of immediate satisfaction of a Steve Reich. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, are there places in our culture that you have seen people do that, um, like in, in a generalized way? Like, is there some is there some part of the culture where you feel like people are like, t t if you take that kind of emotional or psychological mathematics and take it out of music? Is there some place you see people doing that? Hmm. Um, Do you know what I mean? Or is that, is that a weird maybe. question? I, I might not fully get what you're asking. Well, what, what I mean is like, so if you're saying, okay, well, you know, music breaking musicians, you know, a lot of people feel like that's just like perfect composition, you know, but it's, it's perfect because it's just, it's just like, yeah, like lines of M&Ms the whole time, um, you know, and it's and it's it's even ironic with that piece because it's like the whole it's not even what people mean when they say that is this like one recording. I mean, it's actually a great example of like the distance between music making and and audio distribution where it's like, you know, this, there's this one recording which some some graduate student notated off of a performance. But but music to musicians is actually like a post Earl Brown, post Miles Davis, like cued, cued cells kind of composition, you know, it's not a like a linearly notated thing. <laughs> of course, when it's performed, it's not performed like note for note, basically from the fucking record. Um, but yeah, so like people, you know, that's, it is like a seamless fabric, um, which because of its repetition, because of its like scalar qualities, it's just, I mean, I don't know who would be offended by it. I mean, people maybe think people, maybe they'll think it's boring but there's really no like fundamental challenge to people's concept of music or, you know, maybe it's longer than most music that people are listening to because most people are listening to music in like, you know, two to six minute chunks or one to, one to three minute chunks or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like the aesthetic challenge of that piece is pretty minimal, particularly as a, as a recording. Um, I think to like see it performed is something really different, which is also, I mean, that's, that's kind of, yeah, that's an adjacency, but um yeah, I, what my question was more just like, if is there some place where people are regularly finding like fundamental um, experiential challenges for themselves? You know, or is there some part, you know, it's like maybe you could say like, um, what is that like militant um, CrossFit? You know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe like in the exercise community, you have this whole like no pain, no gain kind of attitude that yeah. that is like kind cold of, well, like, yeah, cold showers and like really widely understood as like, 
yeah, like the way that you get a strong body is through like suffering through these things that you just don't like doing, but you just fucking have to do them. And you have to like, you can't eat what you want to eat. You have to like do it. It's all. And it's like, you know, no one does that with photography. You know what I mean? Like you have to just mm-hmm. like look at these images that are like impossible to look at for like years and years in order to be able to see anything beautiful. Um, and I think with, with music, you know, similarly, but yeah. So, so aside from exercise, like because exercise isn't an aesthetic thing. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. You know what I'm asking now, which is like yeah, whether if there's like, some place in the culture. Maybe like, a, I mean, like meditation communities where there's sort of like, uh, you know, like, you know, like the stoic vis- visualization or like, uh, you know, like meditation on death or something like that. Uh, you know, that type of stuff where it's like, it's going to have a potency, but it's kind of like unpleasant to endure. Yeah. And it's like very delayed. Yeah, I'm having these interesting conversations with my my parents. So, like, my parents are, um, like, uh, you know, since the late 60s, transcendental meditation people. Okay. And so, you know, they've been meditating. They're now, they're now, you know, they meditate three hours a day or something <laughs> and have been for decades. And I, and they're now in their early 70s, getting to be their mid-70s. And the last time I saw my, my dad, we were having this conversation, like, um, so, like, if you don't reach enlightenment before you die, like, will you have felt like this was a waste of your time? <laughs> you know, or like, you know, because in TM, like there was a whole idea that, you know, you're going to, you know, like people practice levitating. People are trying to reach enlightenment in this lifetime and they're, you know, committing time, money. I mean, it's their main, the main thing that they do at this, I mean, they're both, they were both like psychologists, um, therapists, social workers, but, you know, since they retired, they basically just like do the meditation thing, live in the woods, hang out with their grandkids. You know, it's like their main, you know, think, think of all the time. If you have three hours a day to do something else, you know, and it was, it was interesting because I think it was really confusing for him to think about that. Um, and I was listening to this Terrence McKenna interview the other day where he was talking about how the fundamental feature of new age techniques is that they don't work as opposed, as opposed to like, um, strong psychedelics where it's like whether or not you know for what they work you know who knows but mm-hmm. you could say like there's very little dispute that like someone who has like a strong mushroom trip like that something did happen you know as opposed to like you know you're listening to your bin- binaural beats recordings sold to you um you know that are supposed to do something very specific to you and like did it really happen you know not clear you know if you're meditating i mean i think for my folks they feel like meditation has really changed even if they don't reach enlightenment it's just changed their life for the better Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I think that's kind of like an open, I mean, that's, it's an open question for things like social practice and art, you know, or like the social value of political art, the extent to which it has, has it, or has it not altered the political trajectory, you know, or for experimental music, it'd be like, to the extent that, um, like, I feel like listening has just fundamentally changed who I am, um, and I have no idea how or why I ended up on this like weird, extremely, you know, it's like no one cares about experimental music. So you can't, you can't really think about and on a global scale, like really no one cares about it or even understands it or why you would do it. It's like a very particular and odd activity, um, which if you happen to stumble into, you do it because it changed, you sh- it changed you somehow. Um, so, but yeah, it's like hard to think about how, how to value these things outside of ourselves. You know, it's like if people are going to drink vinegar, 
only if someone kind of like brings them into some space where they they see that it's extremely valuable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this might bring us to sort of that question that I posed to you a little bit over Signal and uh, basically, I guess, like in terms of like a utility function as some sort of flavor of uh, utilitarian, I, you know, like I, I basically initially wanted to just create beauty and then like then I felt like I had some sort of imperative to like uh, do this mapping thing that we're talking about of sort of, uh, you know, being experimental and, uh, you know, like trying to explore new territory. And then there's like this whole like, you know, ominous sort of like suffering that's just, you know, present all over the world. And it seems like that'd be a good thing to do. And, you know, I guess like, I, I'm a negative utilitarian in terms of like, like intellectually, but it's, it's a hard thing to live by. And when your propensity is sort of artistic and uh, about bringing beauty or complexity into the world, uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that's immediately uh, hitting suffering reduction. Uh, and I feel like you mentioned that black hole sort of touches on this a little bit. So I'd be curious um, if you had any thoughts after marinating on that and if you want to talk mm. about black hole. Well, I think like um, the way that I relate to that <clears throat> is through. I, I think there's no question that it's just not. Um, like, I don't think that meditating brings down the crime rate, you know, and I don't think that like experimental music for people who are not involved with it has some kind of like fundamental benefit to society. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do think has a fundamental benefit to society, which includes experimental music is anything that offers a sense of possibility and escape from the grid of the culture that you're in, um, you know, leaves room for people to find new parts of themselves and new parts of, um, you know, what's possible on this planet for humans. And I think as the, as the culture closes down, I think particularly in like, you know, as like aesthetic culture is so capitalized, um, really anything that is, trying to parry that or offer an alternative to that is really useful. Um, And I can say from personal experience, just like I remember showing up, you know, like the alternative spaces that existed for, you know, could never have existed on ticket sales or any kind of demand model um, are the things that have been most important to me. And those things have been rapidly disappearing in cities as real estate speculation has kind of gotten out of control. Um, And so I think, it is actually enough. Like, I think, so on the one hand, I think you can set a really low bar at this point to say that uh, there's this philosopher whose last name is Gumbrecht who has a really nice, um, he said, he would, yeah, he says, philosophy, philosophy is an awareness of, of alternatives. Hmm. And I thought like, oh yeah, like that's, that's, you could just say like, that's enough, you know, like basically just generating an awareness of alternatives is enough in a, in a society that is so closed as ours is. Um, uh, and so I think like with Black Hole, the, the, the feeling I've had is that, um, you know, experimental music particularly, like there is no reason to replicate capitalist models of collaboration, production, exchange in this environment. Like it's just, it is not about, it's not about money for anyone. Um, and 
there are very few people, like even sort of sound artists who have crossed over into the more visual arts area. You know, you see those people come and go. Like every 10 years, there's a few people who kind of rise up um, and then you see them disappear. And a lot of, I mean, the, the, the people that I have known that have had like little rising moments in that space, you know, it's like they still didn't make anywhere anything near like a living wage from the work. Um, and if you just think about, you know, how many shows at a museum where they pay you $10,000 do you need a year? Okay, well, like maybe you get lucky in one year, you get four of them or three of them and you, you can survive in New York or Los Angeles or not San Francisco, but, some, you know, someplace. But then how many years can you string together? You know, how many museums are there that do shows of, you know, experimental music, sound art kind of stuff and have a budget to pay um, or commission or something? It's like, it just doesn't add up. And so the, the people who, you know, people who we think of like Christian Markley or something, you know, they're making, they're making and selling objects that are sort of loosely around musical poetics and stuff like that. It's not experimental music. Um, uh, so I think, and having been involved in a few spaces that were producing and performing commissioning stuff, I just have come to the feeling like what, what this community needs to survive is actually more like a cooperative model. And we need spaces that are not uh, replicating the capitalist music industry because it's just it's not our it's not our world um and there's no reason to feed that world with what we're doing so yeah so the thing with black hole is like um you know it's a it's a 16 channel sound system it's very it's a really high quality thing that i was able to basically relocate money from some for-profit work to this space to build out the space and then the idea is to you know slowly turn this over to a co-op so people you know there's a few there's, there's projects that I'm kind of like programming now, um, but are just basically people that I've known from previous years and work and just inviting them to present existing pieces. Um, but it's also a space where people can do residence. I mean, COVID has really fucked everything, but, you know, people could come here and, you know, be in the space by themselves for a couple of weeks and make something new. Um, and the idea is that, you know, people basically book um, set listening sessions on the website and the, the funds that come in are broken down like 35% to the author of that session, 35% to a collective fund that everyone who makes a session kind of can decide on, um, and then 30% to support the, the rent of the space. And then there's some other programs that we're doing around like noise policy and um, we provide sound system, like we have a, a bike PA that we provide for protests and other kinds of outdoor stuff and also outdoor concerts and things like that. Um, but it's just like the black hole is like it's a vision for a different type of we need new types of spaces i think if we want to sustain the ethic of this work um mm -hmm. and it doesn't to me it's i have no interest in like competing in some experimental music space and it's complete it's like really weird um that there's any ethic like of there that there should there just should be like a really collective and welcoming ethic for this stuff because it's like it is a completely weird idea that people should go around listening to stuff that's challenging that they don't like um or that is like an experiment ideally and the person making it also is like kind of out on a limb and that it's not an area where people should feel like they need to be perfecting things or even finishing things um so yeah so black hole is really you know it's like an extreme punk version of kinds of things i've been involved in in the past but i that's really intentional that it's you know the rent here is really cheap um, but I think the experiences you can have here and the way it sounds and everything um, is at like a really high level. So yeah, to just try to like create a place that hopefully can sustain itself through the people that 
come here and make things and we'll continue to make things here and just let, let, let it be like a, you know, you turn on a light and you see what, what kind of animals show up and let it be that, um, a community that's built from that. And yeah. So, uh, in terms of like people that, uh, have booked sessions there or like in terms of what you would be listening to there uh can you give me a sense of like what what that would be like like is it music and audio kind of like all sorts of stuff or oh so it's like so far um so far that uh, there's two sessions that are available for booking on the website one is by um composer catherine christer hennix and um catherine is a um performer, musician, theorist, mathematician, extremely idiosyncratic thinker, maker. Um, and it is the it is a, a piece called Solitone Star, which I was involved in presenting for the first time in 2005 at Diapason Gallery, which was kind of, I'd say the most the most similar space to Black Hole I've, I know about, um, a place that I worked, I worked at when I first moved to New York City. And Solitone Star is a 25 millisecond piece um, that people are people are encouraged to listen to for three hours, um, and Catherine has been listening to it continuously since 2003. Um, and by continuously, I mean like has a separate computer um, rendering this work in the background, but also um, her band performs over the drone. Um, it's really like a uh, yeah, it, and there's 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 a whole text that um, if someone books a session and gets sent to them, that sort of like represents the theoretical backdrop of it, and then. The other session currently here is a piece by Francisco Lopez, who's like a long-term kind of noise artist um, going back to the 80s. And uh, he, uh, when I was working at MPAC as a curator, we commissioned him to make this piece, which was like a long composition from 20 years of recordings he'd been making in rainforests all over the world. And he has a whole kind of, I think, complex and um, I don't totally agree, but I also think there's a lot in it, um, kind of like post post Schaeferian idea about what listening to recorded sound is all about. Um, and it's like a 70 minute, it's just an incredible work with highly unusual recordings. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's like a completely different approach to the space. So like that was uh, an 80 channel work that was bounced down to a 5.1 piece that is now being rendered up to a 16 channel, um, Catherine's piece is essentially mono, um, and 25 milliseconds. And so I think the, the, you know, from, as we were talking about at the beginning, like from the, I'm trying to invite pieces in that, um, are thinking of spatialization and a time domain of, of listening in totally different ways. Um, you know, so up coming up, we have like a collection of um, works by like uh, like a luminary new age composer named Robert Rich, who also interestingly has like an experimental music background, um, but has a totally different spatialization concept, very specific. Like they're and they really hang in the air in a, in a yeah in a totally different way from Francisco's piece or Catherine's. Um, there's a like a kind of refiltering of a Kasim Nakvi record. Um, there's a Volkmar Clean piece, which is like 30 channels, uh, all physical modeling of like a single tube. Um, mm. There's a lot of stuff kind of in the works, and basically, I just need to spend the time here to to like um, remix them all for this room because it's just everything sounds. Uh, that's the thing with spatial audio; it's so sighted um, that you have to kind of really mix it all specifically for here. So, 
as as I have time and maybe more like after the election, um, a lot of those additional sessions will come together. Oh yeah, Shelley Hirsch, um, Natasha Barrett. There's a, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of really interesting pieces that'll be here over the next year. But I hope that also as COVID kind of relaxes, people will start making new stuff um, and use the space. Uh, real quick on the on the 25 millisecond thing, that's sure. I mean, 25 milliseconds is essentially 40 hertz, right? So isn't that just like uh, a low note? <laughs> like, is, what's the content of that 25 seconds that if it were repeated, uh, it, I mean, I feel like it would just be a very, right? Well, so, so, so strangely, um, it's like you can... So the, the piece is a snip, is an audio snip for another piece. And it's like this very spectrally dense snip. Um, and it does sound continuous. But I will say that after listening, we, we played it here 24 hours a day for a month, and I was here a lot of that time. Um, I started to feel like I was hearing the, the beads in the piece somehow. I don't know if that was, it was real or just, but the piece really does change a lot as you spend time with it. Um, I mean, not only because of giant standing waves and there's a whole kind of like topography, you know, invisible topography within the space as you move, but in a more, more in terms of the way that your mind constructs the time domain and experiences that um, continuity because it's so short. And it's actually pretty hard to figure out how to get a computer to loop, to like buffer <laughs> that short without any kind of like clicking or glitching, but um, it's happening and it sounds, uh, sounds good. I hope you'll you'll come check it out sometime. So basically, it's like one person per twenty four hour one person per twenty four hour period is allowed here. Besides um, me or um, the person I work with here named Oddbait. And yeah, I'm realizing, John, that I have this other like. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, we can we can resume this some other time or something like that, maybe. Um, but yeah, I'll totally let you go. Um, thanks for talking to me. Uh, where can people find out about Black Hole more? Um, Blackhole.la. Cool. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for talking to me, Micah. Um, maybe we'll talk in the future. Yeah, let's talk again, Tom. Cool. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you.